Are you interested in mindfulness and building relationships? But you just don't really understand the concepts and how to actually put this into practice? Well, don't you worry. Because I will be interviewing communication professionals who have dedicated so much effort to creating a more compassionate world. And if you tune in, I promise you that you will come out with something to integrate into your own communication practices in your own daily life. So join us on this week's Compassion Talk. Dr. Kristen Blinney is currently an Associate Professor of Communication Studies at SUNY College of Oneonta in New York. She is also the author of the book, Pop Culture Yoga, A Communication Remix. Much of her work focuses on the combination of communication theories with meditation, yoga, conscious breathing, or cultivating a present moment focus. We are so excited to have her as the first speaker of the Compassion Talk series. Without further ado, welcome Dr. Kristen Blinney. Thank you so much. It's, a, it's a, both a pleasure and an honor to join you today and to have this opportunity to chat with you more about these very exciting topics. Very exciting topics. Very excited to have you here as well as a fellow communication scholar. So I'm actually excited to jump into some concepts that you uh, have written about in some of your work. Um, with one of them being the notion of contemplative communication. Um, so could you share with us your understanding of this concept? Yeah, I'd love to. So it's interesting that a lot of people use contemplative communication or contemplative communication and mindful communication somewhat synonymously. I use contemplative in the sense that it's it's a nice umbrella term to talk about a variety of different practices that help bring awareness and attention, concentration, presence. Mindfulness would, would do the same kind of work. But what I like about the term contemplation when we bring it together with communication is that contemplation is really about, when you get to the root of the word, it's about to survey or observe. And so when we add communication to that idea, I like to think about the ways in which we can become a witness to ourselves as our communication is unfolding in the present moment. So how can we bring a heightened awareness to the communication choices we're making as we interact with people? Because as, as I have spent a lot of time just in my own work and in my own daily practice of communication, uncovering for myself is that, of course, with every choice we make, we have the capacity to both enlarge or diminish the person we're interacting with in very significant ways, in ways that can ripple in their lives for, I don't know, five minutes, uh, five weeks, five years, or a lifetime, depending on what is said uh, and how it stays with that person and how they carry it. So a lot of the ways that I think about contemplative communication really come down to kind of listening relating and responding with love mm. so that love is that part that says i want to look at this interaction as i'm engaging in it and and pay attention to my impact and so that we can connect that to empathy kindness and compassion but i'll just i'll just say that for now about contemplative communication that's that's my the way i look at it right and i really like that you had mentioned this idea of like observing mm -hmm. 
is not judging, which is so difficult. Non-judgmental awareness is, 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 like you said, is really, it's really challenging to, to put that into practice all the time because we, as Ron, Ronald Pelias says, we live in a critical grind, right? Where everything we're evaluating, measuring, uh, putting into boxes and categories. And so how do we become aware of our judgments? How do we know when we're judging and what that looks like so that we can change the trajectory of that in our interactions? That's part of the practice. Yeah, part of the practice. And even uh, with this idea of, you know, coming at the conversation with, with love, um, you also mentioned in your writings, uh, compassionate communication. Um, do you mind kind of describing your understanding of this concept? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just say about love before I connect it to compassion. I know often when I say, when I mention love, I, I get faces from people about like, oh, love, this is such a big word. It has so much baggage. What are we really talking about here? What kind of love? Mm -hmm. We can get into all the different categories of love. And, and I really look at love as just paying attention to that impact. But then I build it around compassion and kindness and empathy because I think you need all three of those together to get to that place of love. So when I think about compassionate communication as either related to or separate from contemplative communication, for me, compassion is all about, you know, suffering with, right? If you look at the root of that word, what does it mean to suffer with? To first acknowledge suffering in yourself or in others and then have some kind of desire to want to alleviate it in some way. And so when we apply communication to that, I like to think of it as like, how can I cause at least one person to suffer less each day as a result of my communicative interactions with them? And that really fits, as you can see, maybe with this idea of contemplative communication, because if we're actually paying attention to our impact as it's unfolding in the moment, and we're doing so with a desire to alleviate suffering, that's where these two words come together really nicely. And, and that's where, for me, that's that, that's that place of love. Yeah. A place of love where you're like, okay, I have empathy. I'm trying to see the world through someone's eyes. That perspective taking, I have compassion. I'm trying to notice the impact I have. And if there's any suffering that I may not understand. And then kindness for me is really about that. It's, it's, a, it's putting it into practice in such a way that we're trying to enhance the welfare of the relationship in some capacity yeah i really like the, the and of it with you know acknowledging the suffering and you know having this desire to alleviate it yeah and so you had mentioned um kind of this first step in compassion is the um maybe i might argue the most important step is this acknowledgement of the suffering um, and you actually mention in your writing, uh, a little quote here is that developing an awareness of suffering can disrupt the status quo and open a crack in the cement for compassion to bloom. Could you describe this idea for our listeners? Yeah, so it's, it's so easy to move through life in a kind of autopilot. I mean, there's, there's some... I'm not going to argue for the value of that, but it makes our lives easier not having to rethink every process we engage in as we move through our days. Uh, so when we move into when we move out of that stance, uh, it's easier to notice suffering, 
right? It's easy when we're in a state of autopilot to maybe not pay attention <clears throat> to the, the, the harm that we may be causing ourselves, skipping meals, not drinking enough water, uh, not paying attention to feeling burnout. Uh, and then it's even more challenging to notice that in others, especially when we're not living in their bodies, we don't know their stories. And so when I say that it's like we're trying to find this place where compassion can bloom in this crack, it's that crack of awareness, right, that disrupts the status quo when we actually take the time to move from this like we into a we stance from the me stance. Mm -hmm. uh, so first, so I, first, I have to notice what's going on with me. Uh, I have to know my own suffering to see it in other people. And it may be I won't understand their suffering, but it gives me a bridge. It gives me a bridge to help acknowledge it in others in such a way that we can come together and we can disrupt that status quo, which is the status quo invites us to not pay attention to that at all, to just keep pushing on, bottling feelings, <laughs> staying stuck in the grind, uh, more, 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 not enough, not enough, not enough, whatever it is, money, job, status, more relationships. Uh, so it's about pausing, taking a step back, practicing nonviolence to ourselves, noticing the impact we're having on others. That's to me about really disrupting the status quo is, is taking that care and making it real, yeah. right? We're not just do say, I have an ethic of care. It's like, no, I have a practice of care. Yes, I practice care. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting how it's like, status quo is trying to keep you going, going, because I mean, this is, I mean, what is the status quo benefiting? Um, it's not us, but um, I really like to this, this idea of like, you know, the best thing that I can do for you, maybe right now is work on myself. And, uh, and maybe that right there, and actually consciously practicing that. Because um, I think a lot of times people might feel uh, bad that it's like, I don't really have this desire to, to help or to like alleviate that suffering. Um, but I wonder if, you know, the work on yourself might actually create this, this desire to actually, you know, want to alleviate that suffering. I, I would hope so. I mean, it's, 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 it's tricky, right? Because I know a lot of times when we talk about self care or self compassion, self love, people go to this place where sometimes they think it's inherently selfish to, to do that work. Mm. And I understand because that's part of the status quo that keeps us focused in other directions very much so. And so I would say that when we start building awareness of our own suffering, first and foremost, that's, that's going to change the landscape of how we interact with everyone. So if I'm able to notice my reactions, uh, I'm going to probably do conflict a lot differently. And if I'm able to take care of myself in such a way that my moods are not impacting my relationships because I had a good nourishing food or I had a, a, enough rest or enough water, like that's going to do something. That's going to change all the different ways and choices that we can make in our relationships. And, and it helps us be there as not just a witness, right, for other people, but a witness for our interactions in a sense that we can detach a little bit. We don't have to process emotions in the same way that we do if we're like in a fully reactive mode. 
you know, you just don't, things don't work out so well if you're stressed and tired and that's going to keep impacting and it creates a cycle. So even if other people are still in that cycle, if we're not, it can change the dynamic. Uh, this also why I really love um, communication scholar William Wilmot's idea about communication spirals, right? We both bring energy into a dynamic and we amplify it. But what we do with that energy together is important. So if someone's coming at you with a lot of whatever it is, anger, frustration, sadness, emotion, uh, and you come at it in a way that you're a default calm, that has the capacity potentially to lessen the impact or de-amplify what someone else is experiencing instead of going and meeting them in the same place. It may not be the best result. Right, right. All comes back to, you know, we are one and uh, really trying to expand this, um, as you mentioned in writings, uh, we consciousness of, you know, it's how can we just lessen the blow uh, that these emotions that can really take a blow, um, how can we help, you know, lessen that impact? Because I, th I think defaulting to your reactions is almost like the easy route because um, it's just kind of what we're used to. Um, but I think there's, there's, you, you kind of got to want to practice compassion um, because it does, it does take some sort of effort to practice compassion. So um, I wanted to ask if you could describe any um, specific techniques that our listeners might be able to use in order to practice compassionate communication. Yeah, so like you said, it's it can be really difficult to to practice. Uh, anytime we're changing a pattern of our the way we've done communication and we've been doing it a long time and and changing patterns is really, really, really hard uh, for ourselves. And, and it's worth doing. I mean, just, just like simple language choices, for example, and this is just to give an example for that, is that like I teach gender and communication classes and I have an assignment where I ask the group to change, change something in their language that they're doing. So whether it's like, hey guys is a gender neutral term to, can we pull that out in our interaction with someone? And we shift some of the, like, if you're, if you regularly say that's crazy, maybe that's not the word you want to use uh, because crazy has a lot of mental health implications. So changing patterns is hard. And, and so people all the time say they're like, oh, mindfulness is so exhausting. <laughs> so and I know that if, I know that it feels like that maybe at first when we start our practices. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is that practice is what makes progress, mm -hmm. right? Doing something repetitively, it starts to feel less laborious over time. It just becomes a default. So <clears throat> one of my favorite things that I love to work with myself and just to teach uh, is a practice that comes uh, from the book, The Five Keys of Mindful Communication. And uh, the author is Nancy Gillis Chapman. And I love this book for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is this technique. It's uh, the traffic light metaphor that she uses 
in the book about just noticing how we are interacting with each other. And it, to me, very simple to put into practice. So we know red light. <clears throat> and red light typically means that it's we're stopped, right? It's We have closed communication. We're fully stuck in a me first place. We're emotional. We have that high level of reactivity. We're shut down. We're just not wanting to engage with someone. And so if we're in a red light or a red zone, this is not the time for us to uh, necessarily do conflict. This is the time for us to press pause. Uh, we know that when we're in a green, green light zone, uh, we're more in this we first stance. It's open and where we have an interplay, we have, we're meeting each other, we have this kind of reciprocal communication that's flowing nicely. It's easy to identify when, when we're in a green zone. It's pretty easy to identify when we're in a red light zone. Uh, it could be that we are in a red light zone and the other person's in green, but we're still not getting very far because if I'm in red and you're in green, our communication's gonna be challenged. There's gonna be challenges. If it's the other way around, this is the same. If we're both in red, we're really in trouble uh, as far as uh, escalating potential conflict or our differences become heightened in that because we're stuck in our me first. But it's really that yellow zone that we don't pay as much attention to because it's it's fleeting, it's moving between moments, and it's that it's this that's where the moments of choice exist in in this yellow zone. And the yellow zone is, is, is all those moments where we're kind of transitioning between red and green or back and forth because it doesn't flow in the same way that a traffic light would in this metaphor, but it's those moments when we are caught off guard or where we're not sure, we have some kind of doubt, uh, there's a high level of uncertainty that might be in play, but it's in that moment that we have that opportunity to say, am I going towards me or am I going towards we? Wow. And that's what I, that's the technique that I find really, really helpful is just to start to locate where I am in a moment. It's like, okay, totally in a red zone right now. So now is not the time for me to engage with this person on this issue. Now is the time for me to take a step back and go, what am I upset about? What is my kind of emotion? Or as one of my teachers like to say, emotion is simply sensation plus belief. What am I believing about this experience and what is it doing to me? And do some reflection work because I want to. I don't want to be in a red zone, but I know I get there sometimes. So I want to, I want to really take a step back and that's that contemplation, right? How do I sur survey and observe what's happening within me in this moment so that I don't create harm? Because as the compassionate communication part of me says, I don't want to create harm. That's part of just the core of who I am. I want to be a positive influence in the people's lives that, so that's really the focus there. So you get to yellow, it's like learning to get into that. So you know red, you know green, but it's like, can you actually pay enough attention that you can learn when you're in between those states and when you might be moving closer towards red? Mm. So yellow is what I try to pay attention for. So when am I uncertain when someone's caught me off guard where I think I've heard someone, it feels like an attack, right? So I can go straight to red and attack back. Mm. Or I can hover in that yellow for a second and say, I don't know really what's happening with them in their day today. I don't know what the meaning behind that attack might have been. It may have nothing to do with me at all. 
okay, can I go to green and just check in with them and be like, hey, uh, this is what I heard, but are you okay? What's going on? Give me more information. How can I, um, it's just, it gives us that opportunity. So I think it's a pretty simple, it may not sound simple as I'm explaining it, but I, I think it gives us something that's familiar to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, me, we, moments of choice in the middle, uh, that's a good one. And, and if, that, if that doesn't make a sense, another one that I think pairs nicely with that is Amy Saltzman has a, an acronym, PEACE. And it's a really quick, like, okay, I've been, I'm, even if I'm in that moment of yellow, what now? Okay, P, pause. Just pause. Time out. E, take a deep breath in. Exhale. And if I can extend that exhale even better to help bring my body into a better state of relaxation, we get into A, let's acknowledge how am I feeling? What's going on? Can I accept what's going on with myself? What's happening in that landscape? So that I can move into C and I can make maybe a different choice. And then I can get into the next space where I actually engage. Wow. I am such a fan of both of those <laughs> techniques and I, I really appreciate how both of them are one metaphor trying to easily understand another acronym um, to understand. But I, I like how, you know, how you even mentioned earlier where it's, you could default to the reaction or you can practice and consciously make that effort to, either go towards the green light and uh, or engage in a different way. And I really like too that you kind of ask those questions of, you know, what might they be going through today? And I think a confusion with empathy is that like, well, what would I do in, in that situation? But I wonder if it needs to be more of what would I do if I were them, if I had gone through all of their experiences and, um, you know, it's just not what I would do if in that situation. It's what would I do if I were them in that situation? So really I, I think a lot about that. Uh, Wade Davis is uh, an anthropologist that I'm a huge fan of. And he says in a few of his different works that, you know, of course, we're prisoners of our own perceptions acolytes of our own realities. I won't go into the full quote, but but also what he says is that other, you know, people and places, cultures, they're not failed versions of us. And I, I hear myself say that a lot to myself. Other people are not failed versions of me. So that helps me shift from the me to the we. So like you said, that empathy, it's, it's not about what would they do, what would I wish they would do differently in the experience. It's, it's trying to understand why or what does this mean to them in this moment? Mm-hmm. That's how we gain understanding. Yeah. Is that space between us. It's happening between us. Yeah. I think a big one that I um, did recently was driving down the road and, you know, somebody swerving near me. And I think also just with driving, just because things are amped up a little more that your reactions are probably going to be a bit more amped up as well. But, uh, but really just trying to just ask myself, you know, okay, is this, am I going to default to, is this person just being a jerk or, you know, do they have a pregnant individual in the backseat or, you know, a, 
are they rushing to the hospital? So really just trying to understand what's, what's going on with them. And, and then that's kind of like, you know, we're in this, we're in this. I, I, I get that. I, I get maybe what you might be going through. Mm-hmm. Um, just, I have no idea what you're going through and that's enough. I have no idea. Just making that acknowledgement uh, because we're so quick to be like, I know what someone's thinking. I know what they're going through. I'm living in the land of assumption right now and I'm really happy there. <laughs> so letting, softening that, that's, that's, that's really important. Yeah, I really like the work that we can do. But just know that, you know, we are, we're all trying and we're all just trying to walk each other home. <laughs> Beautifully said. Imagine for a second if we uh, never ever again worried about what other people were thinking, how different our lives would be. <laughs> wow. So um, you have such great things to say about, you know, compassion communication. Um, so I, I'm, I'm wondering how has this practice impacted your own life, um, whether, you know, professionally or personally? Uh, well, in, in infinite ways, uh, mm-hmm. it's something that I started the, of course, I started my, my work with mindfulness practices before I ever ended up on the professional path that I'm currently on. I started in my early 20s with yoga, and I came into yoga through music, actually, my love of, of um, classical Indian music. And so that's how I found my way there. And then over the years, my explorations of mindfulness took me into all whole bunch of different directions. But yoga was always the stream that ran throughout it. So I, I studied creativity as my undergraduate degree. I was interested in art and um, health. And then I moved into medical anthropology in my master's degree. So that took me in a totally different direction because I focused a lot on gender and sexuality in my work that I did during my master's degree. And at that time, I realized uh, shortly after that, when I went when I was working, that I was like, I really want to understand better how relationships come together and apart in our communication. And it, and it, I don't know why at the first time I realized that there was a discipline of communication. I feel it feels a little funny and embarrassing to say that now as being so entrenched in it. But at the time I had, it just never occurred to me that we had whole programs where we could study that. <laughs> uh, so I was like, yes to that and then found myself in communication. And actually when I went into my my graduate program in communication at the University of South Florida, I went in with the intention uh, to go in a completely different direction to study study something that I was already working with in a community I was working with and that my yoga was just gonna be on the side, my me stuff that happens just for me personally. And then it, it occurred to me along that path that I was like, actually communication, it's in and of its own is a mindfulness practice. It can be. It's not something where we have to say like, I'm doing my communication thing and I'm just going to bring some of my other mindfulness practices into it. That's great. But it, it itself can be a mindfulness practice. Once I realize that, wow, like I can actually do this in a particular way, infuse it with mindfulness in the art of communicating. That's when it was like, okay, yeah, these worlds have to come together. And, and once they came together, there's no way I could ever separate them. And why would I want to? Uh, because they, they inform each other in so many different ways, right? It's, it's opened me up to looking at communication in an entirely new way. Uh, so, I mean, I, 
I would still argue, uh, along with some of the scholars that I really, really enjoy reading, that there's a, a pretty big absence of, I feel like there's not enough talk about love and forgiveness and uh, things that are so vital to the common good, mm. uh, to them, the health of humanity. And especially now in this like ever more divisive uh, socio-political landscape that we're living in. So uh, I can't, I can't separate them and I wouldn't want to, of course, as I would say that, but I, now that I start, once I started actually teaching and working with mindfulness just in my own communication teaching, because at first it was separate and then I brought it in and it's, mm -hmm. I've just seen the radical transformation, both for myself, learning through other people's lives, but also just in the people that I worked with at all different levels. I work, you know, primarily with undergraduates, but I also now uh, work in a program with uh, SUNY, the SUNY system called the SUNY SAIL Institute. It's a leadership institute and it works with deans and provosts and uh, staff at all different levels across campuses at SUNY. I've been teaching a mindful communication com, uh, like a class with them. So yeah, it just, you, once you start putting these ideas in their practice, it can change your life. Yeah, they are not different. <laughs> one in the same. Yeah, I always thought communication was, you know, you study communication, you can change the quality of your life, the quality of your relationships, just studying communication, that's beautiful. But then you start looking at yourself deeply, all your BS, all the things. Being honest with yourself. Being honest with yourself, yes, speaking your truth, uh, loving with abandon, whatever it is that's like your calling. Uh, to make the world a better place. What does that look like? That, that, I wouldn't, that, um, that work of like looking at my patterns and communication, like that's part, a big part of my own mindfulness work pers personally and professionally. How do we undo our patterns? Mm. And, and once you can, wow, so much power in that. Yeah. So much power in that. And I really like how you had mentioned earlier too, that it's like, we're kind of trapped in this, uh, uh, there was a quote that you had mentioned with, uh, we're trapped in the, the prison of perception. It's like you, you, you almost have to ask the question um, before breaking out of prison. You know, you have to kind of realize I am in prison in order to actually start to break out. And so you kind of have to recognize I have these patterns before you can actually start to break free from these patterns. And so I, I really like how you're um, you've blended, uh, you know, and we even talked about this prior to recording where it's, uh, you know, mindfulness isn't something that you just have to practice while sitting in a dark room by yourself, cross-legged, floating off the ground. No, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it can be while you're talking with your friend about class or, you know, and talking with your parents um or walking down the street during dishes so uh, really integrating mindfulness into your communication patterns will will some things will start to happen and you will start to notice well yeah because it, it really comes down to listening right I, I almost feel like you could say that listening mindfulness contemplation they all share the same kind of energy to them and purpose in the sense that once we bring our full presence into anything, it's going to change our experience of it. 
right? We are taught early on that multitasking is what's going to make us successful and productive and achieve, 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 but we're fragmenting our attention in every way. And we're not present in any of the different things that we're doing at one time. We've learned how to do that moderately successfully, I would assume, but what is the impact on the other side of that? Half of us, like I talk to students all the time that don't even remember classes they've taken anything from them and it's and I don't fault them for that they're doing a bunch of things at once and how do you be present in all of those things when you when you're like you know 18 credits of classes and you're working a job and you're trying to have a social life and uh, so that presence is, is vital mm. to changing anything that we want to in our patterns for sure so in in practicing are there any you know obstacles that we might run into in, in such a practice? Well, of course, there are infinite obstacles. <laughs> uh, but, but more than anything, I think the obstacle, the, the biggest obstacle is the pattern itself doesn't want to shift. Mm. It's familiar, it's comfortable, it's easy, it's go-to. You've been training it for a really long time. So we practice our bad patterns just as much as we practice our good ones. And so we've become experts at some of them. Mm. Uh, there are certain people on, in your life probably that they say this thing and it's an immediate trigger. Straight, like we're going from zero to conflict. Mm -hmm. And that's just going to keep repeating, whatever it is. Uh, so trying to undo these practices that we've uh, been training ourselves to do in distraction. We've been training ourselves in the art of distraction for most of our lives. So trying to say like, okay, I'm going to give my full presence to one object of inquiry at a time, already an obstacle because we're so used to being bombarded with stimuli and information. And then now on top of that, I'm going to do something unnatural and different. I'm going to cultivate the opposite of this thing that I've so comfortably been doing is there's a lot of resistance there. So just in the same way that we, our minds can tell us, yes, eat that pizza tonight. No, you don't need to, you know, do yoga or exercise or whatever it is that, you know, you're going to feel better most likely on the other side of doing it. And yet you can come up with thousands of justifications and, you know, five seconds of time about why you can give yourself the night off. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just need the night off, right? That's fine because we need to rest too. But sometimes we just take the things that might actually make our lives better and we don't do them. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's an obstacle. And we know that if we do them, we're going to feel better. We yeah. just are comfortable doing the other thing. Yeah. And that's definitely, again, where that honesty has got to come in. But yeah, those patterns can be very seductive and getting you to just hey you know we've been doing this a long time come on but uh but i mean that, that that comes when it's like i want to you know enact a new pattern or change this pattern so you had previously mentioned that somebody can say something and you can go from zero to conflict real quick and so you know just coming past a year of 2020 where it seems as though conflict uh, is left and right and um, guilty as charged right over here um, could you explain to our listeners how we might practice compassionate communication with someone you just dislike <laughs> so 
first I'll make the difference between the, the random stranger that we are raging online with in a comment section, whatever platform we're on. That is going to be even more of a challenge to practice it in those spaces because we don't know them. There's no real connection there. And they may have said something that triggered us so deeply that we feel like we have to respond. Mm. I get it. But I would say pass that opportunity because I don't know. One, it's not going to result in we're not going to change another person's mind for the most part in those like quick little internet fights that we're having with people especially strangers you always hope that we you will right but is that our ego telling us that that's the possibility maybe it just makes us feel better uh to react and just drop say these things that i might not normally say uh in this anonymous so semi-anonymous space depending uh but it's so easy to fall down the rabbit hole of that and and then the other side how do you feel I don't, I typically don't feel any better yeah. uh, when I've dropped a bunch of that stuff down. And, and, and I've, I've, I'm not going to say that I have resisted it in every way because there's been so much that we could talk about and argue about in 2020 uh, from the pandemic to protections about the environment or about gender and sexuality or about race, racial justice and equity. I mean, there's just so much we could fight about. Mm. And some of that fighting is very seductive because uh, depending on your political stances, uh, especially if they lean towards justice, you're going to feel like you want to fight injustice. Um, and I, I want to do that too. But I know that I want to do it in ways that can actually have an impact and mm -hmm. that don't just harm me in the process. So I, I definitely make it, I separate that from say like, okay, how do I practice this with someone I don't like that I actually have to interact with, whether it be a family member or an acquaintance or a coworker or some, someone like that who, whether it's like I actually dislike them or I just have trouble interacting with them for whatever reason. Maybe they dislike me and I don't have any sensation towards them in that. So how do we do that? That's a great question. And, and I know I've heard a lot um, of people asking that question, especially like, how do I go home on the holidays if, when that was a thing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> talk about politics uh, with my, you know, uncle who believes such and such or whoever it is. And I think the, the best thing we can do is start with ourselves again. And it sounds like I'm, I'm advocating for this like selfish practice communication, but it's not. We cannot control other people's communication. We shouldn't even try, honestly. Uh, the only thing we can control in any given situation is how we interpret it and how we respond to it, whether we react or respond and the impact that it has on us. So I, it, at once we are like survey and observing ourselves as the communication is unfolding and if we feel attacked, if we are in a situation where we're starting to feel like that defensiveness rising, uh, all of that is, you know, it makes sense. It's part of the landscape of reaction that happens when we feel harmed or wounded or in a protective stance. But I would just notice that. I think that's important because we, we get really, it's the same thing that we say, like in a lot of mindfulness traditions, it's like this attachment to sensation that keeps us stuck in reaction we have the same attachment to criticism as we do praise mm. we just like praise we don't like criticism 
And so I've spent a lot of time trying to train myself to like kind of equally detach from both those polar opposites so that, I mean, it's, I'm not perfect. I'm in, greatly imperfect, <laughs> perfectly imperfect, so to say. But um, if, if you cannot invest in it, the emotional energy of the, the sensation that you get when you want to move into a place of reaction, I think that that helps a lot, especially when you're working with someone in whatever capacity, friend, family, foe, coworker, mm-hmm. that you have a difficulty with. All we can really do is be gentle with ourselves and try to not react, try not to take it personally, as Don Miguel Ruiz would say in the Four Agreements. Do our best to be impeccable with our word. Don't make assumptions. Try not to take things personally and always do our best. I think those are, are great words of wisdom to work with in those scenarios. Sometimes it's better to spend less time with those people. Yeah, boundaries are okay. <laughs> Boundaries are okay. So that may that may not be uh, exactly what you were trying to get at, but uh, I definitely think in the realm of conflict, especially I, te- I like teaching classes in conflict because I think they're so valuable. It's like, how do we develop curiosity? How can we take a negative situation and see if we can get to a curious place? Mm-hmm. That's a, a practice in and of itself because we don't, our mind doesn't want that. We want to stay in the critical grind, like preferences. I like you. I dislike you. I don't like what you said. That was good. That was bad. Acceptable, not acceptable. We want to stay there. But how do we transcend that and yeah. say, what's, what else is there? Is there anything else there that I don't understand that can help me look at this differently? Mm. No, you answered, you hit the nail right on top of the head. That was beautifully worded. So I do think that too, uh, a lot of times people might think like, oh, I'm being, if I'm compassionate, people are just going to like walk all over me. Um, And in your writings, you mentioned that compassion does not translate to tolerance. Um, Could you explain that sentence? Yeah. So, I mean, again, compassion, we're trying to look at like suffering. We're trying to look at the suffering and create some kind of felt desire to alleviate it in some capacity. That's, that's really where I'm coming at it from. Mm. Tolerance is like putting up with it. I'm just willing to live with it. I may very strongly disapprove of it. I may find discomfort around it. So I know tolerance, it it gains some traction as a word, especially with like diversity inclusion work. Let's tolerance, promote tolerance on our campus. And it's like, no, we don't want to promote tolerance. We don't want to just put up with our differences. Hmm. Even if we dislike them, we want to learn how to accept them. We want to learn how to accept the unique things that make people who they are and celebrate those differences because, wow, wouldn't life be so boring if we were all the same? Hmm. And it wouldn't be any less complicated. Yeah. So the radical acceptance. Yeah, radical acceptance. Absolutely. So for me, compassion is that's where it's like it comes in with the empathy and the kindness to me, why they kind of they all three act synergistically. I think of them kind of like it's like a triangle of interaction. That's why I put love in the center. It's that like, okay, I'm able to engage in perspective taking, which helps me accept that I am not the same as this other person and that we may have conflict in the sense that we may be uh, challenged by our differences, but we can look at those differences and see where we can find uh, not necessarily common ground, but a common place to meet. 
mm-hmm. in that in that place to see like at least have a keep the conversation going mm-hmm. and then we have compassion where we can start to see the impact on each other are we creating suffering are we coming in with suffering what does that look like and then the kindness is really for me is that that practical step where we're like okay how can i try to enhance this situation or make a choice where i'm not actually uh, diminishing or causing more harm in my interaction so that I can uh, at least walk away from it and go, okay, well, we may not agree. Reasonable people can and do disagree, uh, but I didn't leave feeling worse about myself or them in the course of that. (laughs) And so for me, tolerance just keeps us stuck in this place of, it's just like I'm putting up with it, but I'm not really diving deeper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Compassion is that, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to engage with this yeah go a little bit further because i just i just feel like uh we're also different that's that's really beautiful and we don't it's so often not framed in that way uh because to me i'm like oh what can i discover about this person that's like that insatiable curiosity what can i learn um about them what can i learn from them how might learning from them change who i am in this moment like that's that's like for me that makes life an adventure Wow, that is so awesome. Well, uh, Dr. Vlenny, we have covered some very important ground today. Um, But before we go, are there any specific readings um, that could maybe help our listeners? uh, Should they want to learn more about uh, contemplative or um, compassionate communication? Yeah, so I referenced the book earlier, The Five Keys of Mindful Communication by Susan Gillis Chapman. I think that's an excellent text. And another one that I would highly recommend is uh, Say What You Mean by Oren J. Soffer. It's a really great text. And of course, I also referenced uh, in the course of this this chat, uh, the, the Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. And he has a lot of stuff with that beyond just the book he uses as courses and all kinds of things. So, and Orange J. Sopper has a, a great talk about his book. So if one didn't want to go for a book, but wanted to go for the talk instead, then that's available. And uh, Susan Gillis Chapman also has quite a variety of resources about her work too. So. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Valini, I cannot thank you enough for your insights and, you know, help with, better understanding this uh this this beautiful concept well thank you so much for inviting me to have this conversation it's been such a joy and uh if anyone ever is listening and wants to reach out i'd be happy to connect around these topics so thank you so much thank you